Hello. Today I have Ryan and Courtney with me of um, Native Lands Restoration, Restoration Collaborative. Collaborative. They yeah. just new got name. a new name. <laughs> um, I'm used to Native Lands LLC. Um, Courtney is somebody who I've I've known you a little bit longer than Ryan. Mm -hmm. um, they are business partners and real life partners. Real life partners. <laughs> yeah. And. Um, I met Courtney back in 2018. Uh, she was leading a riverbank restoration project um, in Lawrence, and I helped out mm -hmm. by clearing away uh, invasive species and taking photos. And then we were just chatting. I think I met Ryan at Beers of the Cost. So um, I've known them both for a little while and run into them often as we're all prairie Fanatics and an advocate. It's a nice word for fanatic. Yeah. Right. So um, I'd love to give you guys the chance to introduce yourselves a little bit. Yeah. Oh, great. Um, so, yes, Courtney, I am an ecologist and botanist um, and an artist. And, um, and, and I just love all those things combined. And I sort of specialize in trying to find ways to connect all of those things together and bring and build community around around protecting sensitive spaces sensitive plants yeah mm -hmm. i'm ryan um i guess i'd say i'm a jack of all trades with a, a passion for nature i do a little bit of everything he does mm -hmm. and you're you're you guys are a dynamic duo you do everything <laughs> together we really do everything together you'd think it seems like a recipe for disaster right i think most folks um can't imagine wanting to wake up with the same person that you're working with all day <laughs> yeah, and then right. go to sleep next to that person and every meal and everything together but we it's i great. still like each other yeah. we do we absolutely i think we absolutely love it we're very lucky yeah. um to do it yeah <laughs> you're adorable <Aww. laughs> So for our conversation today, we're going to delve into um, basically kind of centering everything around the prairie. Um, that's what Ryan and Courtney do in like most or if not all aspects of their work is is for the prairie. So you guys are a dynamic duo now. Uh, when and where and how did you meet? Oh, my gosh. Well, we met in high school mm -hmm. um, very soon after I moved to Kansas with my family. Um, we had classes together in high school, um, and I, I particularly remember having a photography class together. Um, Ryan was always very sweet. We were uh, good friends. Class. Jewelry class, too. Yeah. Wow. So art classes together right. in mm -hmm. high school. Um, and we just became fast friends and hung out. Um, until Ryan graduated, he was a couple of years ahead of me and, um, he moved away for a, a brief moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and we didn't really have a romantic relationship until, um, 2006. So we were friends from the late nineties until 2006. Mm -hmm. Um, yep. and then started hanging out and never stopped hanging out. Yep. And now it's, now, we're here. Now, <laughs> now it's 2023 and we're still hanging out. You got married in there. Yeah, there's a, a yeah. wedding <laughs> somewhere. No big deal. No big deal. <laughs> Nothing changed. Started some businesses, got some degrees. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, can you tell me a little bit about Native Lands and what it is? Yeah. So, long story to get me to Lawrence, but when we arrived in Lawrence for me to start grad school and Ryan started doing um, cabinet making, woodworking here, um, 
we were really missing our Kansas City community. That's where we met and started our careers was in Kansas City. Um, and we were doing a lot of uh, volunteer work in Kansas City to protect natural areas with Kansas City wildlands. Um, Linda is and was um, a really integral mentor for me um, in my That's career. Lin who's Linda? Linda Lairbaum. She's the co-founder and intrepid leader of Kansas City Wildlands um, and still is. <laughs> when we moved to Lawrence, I felt like a hole in my soul for for that work because there wasn't organizations helping folks connect to native landscapes or to nature really in general, let alone how to, to care, be good stewards of that land. Um, and, and that's what we we kind of came from being immersed in it all the time in Kansas City and moved here and didn't have a way to or no permission to to access spaces and care for spaces here. They, they involved the community there. If it was having if it was happening here, it was all behind the scenes basically. So right. We didn't know how to access that. Right. And yeah. and as folks who are plugged into nature, if we couldn't figure it out, then we probably the average yeah. person can't figure it yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we started um, with the form formation of a an informal nonprofit called uh, the Caw Valley Native Plant Coalition. A lot of the folks who are in native plant leadership, native landscape leadership in this area were part of that coalition um, of folks to protect and uplift native plants in this community. So I, uh, it's sort of a who's who of native plant people. Mm -hmm. Some of those folks already had businesses uh, protecting native landscapes, but most of them didn't. We were all looking for a way to create change in this community centered around protecting prairie and other native landscapes. So I did that while I was in grad school. I started that organization with a couple of folks. It was wildly popular. We gave a lot of presentations in the community. Everything was free, giving out free seeds, trying to provide plants to people, start demonstration gardens around the community, all sorts of things. Um, I started working for KU doing research and field work after grad school and started Native Lands LLC at the same time. Cause I'm crazy. <laughs> so I had, uh, but I, but I, it's sort of like I was, had my finger on the pulse of what the community needed. Uh, and there, there was just a, a great deal of yearning to heal the land and to connect with the land, um, and outcry from the community. And I felt a lot of pull, um, and a lot of, I don't know, my heart was just sort of ready to do that work and to help people because I had the knowledge, but I didn't have the platform to do that. I didn't have the organization to work with. I looked for the right job for a while, but there wasn't an agency or a nonprofit or a local business that was offering those types of services to folks. So I just decided to start my own thing. Created a, created a solution where there was a need. Yeah. That's what businesses should be. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so, um, why, why native plants and why the prairie in the first place? Like, where did that passion for prairie landscapes come from? Like yeah. before you were an ecologist, before you were a botanist, you know, why and how did you learn about that? That is such an awesome question. I, I grew up with some gardening with family, but not a lot. Uh, my mom was in the military and uh, when we were together, we would spend time with our hands in the dirt. But for the most part, we 
you know, I, I, I used nature. I didn't use nature. <laughs> I escaped into nature for a lot of reasons, you know, to heal, to, to have for adventures, to build community with my family, my little sister and I especially spent a lot of time in nature sort of as an escape. And uh, as I got older, I, I was always going to be an artist <laughs> and I have a lot of hours of college art study under my belt. And I started working professionally as a photographer for a while there. And my work got really environmentally charged. I'm sure you understand. <laughs> um, and less palatable to the masses, less of a commercial product. I never really was a good commercial artist. I, I mean, I can produce art, but I was never about palatability. Well, in my opinion, art and um, capitalism don't really mix, but we try really, really hard we do. to make them mix. So that <laughs> we makes do. sense to me. Yeah. We do. And I, 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 you know, I love artists that are able to make that work. And I, I wish that I could have, uh, but I was never really good. And I'm still not good at monetizing the things I'm passionate about. But uh, when I realized I didn't like creating art for other people, I decided to go back to school to get an environmental science degree. And I, that's, I ended up here somehow, but um, I thought I'll get a science degree to pay for my art so I can do my art for me. And I chose the lowest paying field of science <laughs> and the most, you know, like the most hours and the most effort to try to make a career out of it. Um, and, and, and I do luckily get to use my art fairly regularly as um, a way to bridge sciences and, and community and education but not the same way. So I look forward to, and we'll get to that, a, a time when I can scratch a little bit more of that art itch. I feel like you've been saying that to I, me for several right. years. <laughs> I have, I have. I really hope I'll get there. <laughs> it's interesting. I think for me, I, I've i lived my whole life in Kansas, but and it sounds so funny to say, but I did not know about the prairie landscape ecosystem, none of it until my twenties. Yeah. I didn't know what I was looking at. Like I, mm -hmm. I went to K-State, I went to Kansas State University. I drove through the Flint Hills, you know, from Olathe to Manhattan on the reg and did not fully appreciate that landscape for what it was. Yeah. Um, and I assume at some point in my education, like, you know, there were lessons taught on prairie, maybe not because I don't recall. Right. <laughs> like I remember learning about monarch butterflies and things like that, but I don't feel like there was a ton of education around the ecosystem that we are living in mm -hmm. or that, you know, our native landscape, our native landscape. Yeah. yeah thank you. We're yeah. not necessarily <laughs> surrounded by prairie anymore, yeah. but, but once I, once I discovered it and um, Courtney, it was a big piece of that learning for me. I, okay. I went to a few different talks um, of hers and of like the Nature Conservancy and Friends of the Caw and, you know, just and the impetus behind that was me moving out to the country. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously out here we're surrounded by quite a bit of farmland, but there there is actually a prairie right across there the road is. from me. It's so pretty too. It's beautiful. Um, and so I, I would run on these dirt roads, um, gravel roads, as a form of exercise and, you know, would see little plants popping up on the side of the road that I would have never noticed just driving by them. You know, yeah. I, I got like really, and so it totally distracted me from my runs. I didn't get like the greatest exercise <laughs> in, but I became really curious and I was like, what is that, you know, little purple flower. And then I, I found, um, I think it's native wildflowers.ks or something. Yeah, that Kansas website? wildflowers. 
kswildflowers.org. Yeah. Yeah. And just began like looking up everything that I saw and like learned the names of a lot of different plants. Like there was such a spider wart growing Mm -hmm. on the side of the road. There's of course common milkweed. Um, Blazing stars. You have blazing stars. Yeah, blazing stars, mm-hmm. which are amazing. They've got a lot of funny names too. Yes, they do. <laughs> um, what's the? Is it purple gay feather? Yeah, yeah, purple gay feather or prairie gay feather or scaly gay. There's a bunch of gay feathers. Yeah, and which I, is the fun, which most is fun. It is to fun, say. and it's funny. I think it's more of a. It's a not that old. We were just talking about how time is relative, but it, it's a, a previously used common name that we don't use a lot anymore. Um, so we're witnessing, we're living through the transition from gay feather to blazing star. Interesting. I yeah. I huh. think it's cool. I like gay feather. I like better. gay feather. I like them both. Fun. I, I, I'll call them liatris. <laughs> yeah. Just call the them by their, just call them by, by their, their scientific name, by the scientific <laughs> Latin name. But so, um, I kind of, I kind of came to know the prairie on my own and or through my own discovery and then definitely had the help of people like Courtney who, you know, know what they're looking at and what they're doing <laughs> to kind of supplement my understanding and knowledge and and um, then began getting involved. And that's how we ended up meeting was uh, I helped with a prairie restoration project, um, a riverbank restoration project, and kind of got involved that way. But through my learning and then getting involved and meeting other people who are really passionate about the prairie, it became a passion of mine, mm-hmm. um, which is why I wanted to talk to Courtney and Ryan because um, I'm super just like grateful for your work that you do here. And um, I think it's really important to know, as you did, that there you guys are kind of the community glue oh. in Lawrence <laughs> That's very um, when it comes to like native landscape people um you know like you were saying there was like disparate efforts and people who wanted to do things and now we have a really strong i feel like community of native plant people in this area who are um like knowledgeable and taking action you know in their own backyards or front yards yeah um and just i think that passion for the prairie is really important so people listening maybe are like why is the prairie matter again <laughs> like what what's the big deal so so why does it why does the prairie wow. landscape matter you know i was just having a conversation with someone close to me this morning about um something similar but in a different state so i'll start with prairie matters to those of us in the midwest because it was the landscape that was present before european settlement Um, And that wasn't that long ago. (laughs) You know, there were millions of acres of tall grass prairie and other types of prairie that spanned Canada to Mexico, Canada to Texas, um, quite broadly too. you know, Rockies to the edge of the deciduous forest in the east. Um, That was our landscape. And it was the it wasn't it was everything to the peoples of the prairie. It was food, shelter, you know, fiber. It was everything, medicine. And in a very short period of time, we uh, we visitors, you know, and I, I like to think of us as being both at home, but also um, students of the folks who have lived here for dozens of thousands of years. Being indigenous people, people indigenous to these lands. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The tribes of the prairies, even those folks who were just passing through, um, knew more about this landscape than we know now. And it didn't take but a couple hundred years to lose you know, many, many thousands of years of knowledge. And we're always learning through colonization Mm -hmm. and through um, the eradication of these people and their knowledge and their language and their ways of living. Absolutely. And they had to like 
they traveled slowly through these places, so they had to experience everything. You know, they weren't just driving seventy miles per hour in a car. Yeah, how like fast me you running? Get yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 yeah. Really intimate with the landscape. Well, when it's your everything, you have to know your plant friends and your animal friends intimately. Um, yeah. And like Ryan was saying, sometimes it's like, how fast can I get through Kansas mm -hmm. when it should be? how slow when you know what is the luxury of time and and how can i slow down and, and meet all these friends right. and learn from them and of the peoples as well which we unfortunately as you were stating accurately we've displaced most of the folks who had that knowledge um displaced is not even the right word no. but we're just yeah <laughs> shoved <laughs> out aggressively yeah. angrily um and and we obviously had no concept of what we were losing and what we you know the type of loss that we've imposed on other folks um so what we're trying to do, the, the impetus for the work, the driving force is to just capture and protect what's left of that knowledge of the landscape that remains, which is less than 1% of our prairie remains in this area. Um, the plants that are dependent on the prairie landscape for survival and the animals that are dependent on those plants. I mean, it's it's like building a, you know, a, 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 an entire community on um, on little, relationships that seem small at first but they're so incredibly complex that we have we don't even know what we don't know mm -hmm. you know so trying to protect what's left so that we can continue to learn and and be healthy and grow as a community around these natural communities so being that like for the most part and this is a very general statement because there are certainly people who do still have connection to mm -hmm. the plants and use them as their food and their medicine. Mm -hmm. um, but that has been greatly diminished because of European settlement. Um, since we no longer, for the most part, live in that way, why does it matter to continue to learn about the prairie and protect what's left and restore what we can? Why does that matter? That is so important. I think that you're asking questions from the perspective of a lot of, a lot of folks who don't if I've lived my whole life without interacting with the prairie, why does it matter? Yeah. I think that a lot of folks don't recognize the role of native landscapes all across the whole globe, but certainly here in protecting our sustainable sustainable food systems, our water quality, um, our pollinators that obviously is part of the food system, um, everything you can think of. Uh, strange things like uh, Oak, um, Oak Hill Cemetery in Lawrence, the headstones keep falling over and it's because there's no plants with deep roots to keep the headstones standing up. Everything in your daily life is affected by the native landscapes around you. In Lawrence, a good portion of the water that we drink comes out of the Kansas River, which is a prairie river. If we lose all the prairie around that river, then we lose our water quality and our healthy drinking water. How does that happen? So the native plants have deep extensive root systems that anchor soil and capture nutrients that are in excess um all sorts of things i'm cer certainly simplifying so like for the average person like runoff from chemicals that we use in our yards yeah. which otherwise would end up in the river which would right. otherwise end up in our drinking water if not for the prairie roots right right so these plants some of them really excel at picking up excess nutrients some of them excel at other things you know anchoring soil certainly is to me, I think of that as the job of the prairie grasses. They're the ones with the really deep root systems. Um, they're also really uh, important for anchoring soil, uh, um, even if they have shallow roots, during drought. So a lot of our prairie species are really good at um, surviving extensive periods of drought, and others specialize in 
extensive flooding. So, and, and all that diversity, all those, I always say all those different tools in the toolbox um, make our native landscapes um, the, the perfect landscape for what we're about to go through, what we're going through now, which is a radically shifting um, climate. We don't know where we're going, right? And so the more diverse your toolbox, the more likely the tool is in there to protect you or to provide those services. I hate to say it that way, but to provide us those resources, um, no matter what we're facing. Yeah. So what happens when we rip out the prairie and in its place, put, um, lawns Mm -hmm. and monoculture crops, Mm -hmm. what do we like, what do we lose? So huge amounts of stuff, but you know, more broadly speaking, we, um, we've lost a massive amount of topsoil uh, through agriculture. And I'm, we're friends with a lot of farmers. We love our farmers and we love to eat. Um, so not trying to diss food production, obviously, but um, there's certainly sustainable farming practices and not sustainable farming practices. And the more research that uh, we're able to uh, conduct on prairie and its value as a pollinator resource, the more we understand the relationship between sustainable food systems and native landscapes, the more we recognize they have to coexist. Um, other things that we lose when we lose native landscapes, um, we lose the animals that depend on those landscapes. And maybe you don't hunt, maybe you don't uh, sit outside in your garden and look for native bees or butterflies, uh, but those organisms are doing really important work um, in a in in a perfect model of sustainable food systems it, that include meat. Um, a lot more of that shifts to our native large animals and hunting. Um, certainly, that was the way uh, things were done 200, 300 years ago. Um, we leaned more on our native animals as food systems um, or as part of our food systems. We don't do that now. We consume food um, at a much higher rate than than we did historically. So that's where the shift to modern agricultural systems has been important in supporting our huge populations. Um, so when we think about native landscapes and whether they can support us as a people, um, we have to address all sorts of things. Um, I already obviously addressed food, but um, po- supporting our populations, enough clean water for all of us, um, healthy uh, healthy neighborhoods, healthy communities for us to live in. Um, and to me, that includes everything from waste management, you know, all the way to sustainable food, but also thinking of recreationally and our time in nature, the, the things that are hard to pin down to define that make us healthier people. Um, a lot of the folks that interact with us are looking for just a way to connect with nature and they don't even know why. Yeah. It's because they're missing it. Mm-hmm. It's and, because it's yep. part of who we are mm-hmm. as, as I was going to say people, but, um, as, as, a species. Living, as a species, <laughs> yeah. as like, yeah. as a living, we belong in this system. We are part of the right, system. Right. We're not like the top of the system. Like a lot of people think, or yeah, <laughs> predator. Predator. We're, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we are, I think you're absolutely right. And I think we forget that we are animals that are part of yeah. this landscape. Um, yeah. and, I like to think that we were put here as like the observers and recorders of like history. Yeah. Yeah. Just I think of us as the level. stewards. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think so. Yeah. So often. Um, and I feel like <laughs> I'm like pointing to European people as the problem, but like we kind of are um, in, this in a scenario, lot of instances. Yeah. yeah. In this, in this situation, we really are. I, I think a lot of times the mentality is uh, that we are 
not part of the system. We are, you know, from like a environmental standpoint, I think too often we're thought of as the problem and like, how do we remove ourselves Mm -hmm. in order? You know, it's like, it goes back to like the fathers of environmentalism, like, you know, their idea of like preserving pristine landscapes. And part of that is like removing humans from the equation. Whereas the indigenous viewpoint is that we have a role to play. We just need to play it in a responsible way and and be a, a beneficial part of the systems right. rather than like the extractor Take and control yeah right. yeah all right yeah. try to put order to things that we don't understand and there's a naivety have an exactly. exactly that's what i mean we should be observing these things and yeah yeah we should be, be your teacher. yeah and i think what's one <laughs> yeah. of the things and this isn't true of all ecosystems though perhaps it is but because we there's no way of knowing um the prairie and our native landscapes here so we work in all all of the native ecosystems of kansas um the prairie especially uh, has never existed in the absence of humans it is it evolved in the presence of the tribes that were living here um and they certainly weren't thinking oh wow one day there's prairie and then the next you know the day before there wasn't um but the prairie ceases to exist in the absence of human caretaking of human stewardship um, which today is like removing invasive species and prescribed burning, burning and... yeah um, sometimes hay, whatever sometimes sustainable grazing systems um we have certainly like you're saying there's been a and it, time is so short but it wasn't that long ago that the the leaders of the environmental advocacy um were, did kind of demonize the human right mm-hmm. um no matter who the human was we shouldn't be taking we're taking everything is taking um and we just need to step back and let nature do its job but you know fairly recently uh, as time goes we realized that stepping back and letting nature do its job maybe that would have worked before but we've created such radical change um especially with the introduction of non-native species but certainly being really hands-off thinking that was the right thing to do creates things like woody encroachment or or if there was an unchecked uh species or problem and no one was observing it uh then we that can we can get decades into a problem and all of a sudden realize it we also we put up tons of fences we yeah (laughs) barring people from nature but also keeping people in and keeping people out restricting movement Uh, all of these things we know now to be really problematic yeah and we're trying to come back from essentially fallow you know hands-off care of nature which was a brief blip in time but it was it's going to take a long time to come back from yeah um but you know what in the period of time that we were not touching nature and letting nature do its thing we thought we it was better in our absence we have continued to develop and you know scour the earth with our our existence trying to live in our really harsh bubble yeah um, separating us and i think too about like our growing population like there's going to become a point where we can't set aside land to be untouched right because we're gonna run out of room yeah and so it to me it and you can validate this or not (laughs) but um uh, it makes more sense and it, it seems to be a more sustainable model to learn how to integrate nature and, and vice versa, like integrate yeah. ourselves into nature mm-hmm. so that we can live in harmony versus saying like, okay, we're going to take this land and make it a city and it's going to be a city and there's not going to be any nature. We're going to use it how, you know, for our own purposes and not worry about that. And then we're going to set aside this 
other area (laughs) that's you know we're not going to touch it's going to be pristine and that's how we're going to go forward like i would imagine into the future that becomes even more difficult to do absolutely i think and we we think about this with municipalities with some regularity of um, (laughs) how do we get ahead of ourselves ahead of development and protect really pathways um uh for wildlife to move through Mm. these really harsh landscapes that we are putting on the earth. There's no way that an isolated postage stamp of a native landscape, no matter what it is, is going to function the way it would have without, with, if it was had connectivity. Because all of these species, (laughs) (laughs) all of these species, including us, like all of us have to move about. You can't just restrict, you know, yeah animals to a little postage stamp area and expect them to be okay like they've got to move about yeah there's hundreds of reasons why isolating native landscapes even if you could pin the animals to that space that it just doesn't work doesn't work yeah i mean you can go you could investigate it from the microscopic genetic level and watch it break down or you can look at it from the top down and recognize that it's just not going to function the way that it would have historically so I think back to you talking about being at K-State and being on Kanza and being immersed in prairie and not seeing maybe how special that landscape was. Not even knowing what I was looking at. (laughs) Even Kanza and what feels like it's enormity is just a tiny postage stamp of what would have been here. And Kanza is isolated from other prairie um, by all sorts of things. Development, and that development's growing all the time, um, but by uh, agricultural land use. Uh, so it's, it's one of the largest swaths left still. So it is. It's. I think it's the second largest prairie yeah. left, and we, a big a big goal of ours is is trying to create that connectivity again. It, there's no way for us to get back, right? Um, what we had, unfortunately. Even if I was all powerful, I wouldn't erase all human existence and try. It, it wouldn't solve the problem. Yeah. We've broken it to that that to that level. But if we can create that connectivity through our backyards, through our business Mm -hmm. green spaces, through our parks, from big prairie to big prairie, you know, creating these webs of native landscapes to aid these animals in going from place to place. That's our goal. Um, Mm -hmm. So I wonder um, what you think of like, what are the nature bridges over highways and such? I want to kind of hear your thoughts on that. So a couple of weeks ago, I was driving on K-10 and there's always roadkill on K-10. Yeah, it's devastating. You know, all kinds of different animals you see. And the other day I saw a coyote dead on the side of K-10 and it was so sad. There was another coyote that came up to oh it. Oh my gosh. It was like, it must've been his partner or something. Kind of sniffed the dead coyote and like looked around and then turned around and, and hightailed it out of there. Yeah. And it just broke my heart. And It is um, heartbreaking. And actually, before we talk about nature bridges, um, can you, I know you're not a wildlife biologist, but can you give a little plug for <laughs> coyotes and possums and yeah. other hated mm-hmm. members of the prairie oh my ecosystem? Gosh. Because people hate them so much I, and they're so they're precious. So they're so important. And we do truly live immersed in prairie. Um, we don't have prairie all the way around us, but we are fortunate to live in a a pretty natural landscape uh, just north of Lawrence. And we interact with these animals all the time. We celebrate their songs at night. We celebrate them as friends when we see them in the field when we're working. 
they all play such an important role in the community. And I, when I try to think of sales pitches for each one, yeah. I, there's so many, like just the coyote, um, coyotes, uh, uh, rodent control, um, cleaning up carrion, you know, dead animals that otherwise would build up in the system. Um, they have really interesting relationships with other animals in communities mm -hmm. like badgers and other burrowing animals. You know, um, that each of the native animals to this landscape fill a niche that we have yet to understand. I don't think there's a single native animal that we've got completely figured out that we understand all their value. Can we dispel some myths about the opossum? The opossum. Um, so there's, you know, I think we're, there's some inflated positivity, which I can't argue with about their tick management. Um, they uh, do certainly eat insects and other, you know, like they're omnivores, so they can eat all sorts of fun things that they find. Most of us interact with them in our trash or just kind of walking down the road in the middle of the night. Um, they are excellent climbers. They're, I find them to be absolutely beautiful. They're wonderful parents. Um, we did. There are only marsupial. That's really right. special. Uh, there's a million positive things. So something I hear oftentimes is like, they are trans big transmitters of rabies. Um, they are just gross to look at. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me so sad. I know. Um, that they're dangerous. Um, right. that, and I know there's, there's also, um, like a disease that they can carry that can kill horses, but I don't, I don't like, know. How often is that happening? I don't know. Um, and I, I mean, it's, it's true that they do all wild animals have the capacity to carry disease. Yeah. And so do we <laughs> opossums. Yes, of course they carry disease. Don't just randomly pick up wild animals. It's not good for them anyway, but they, their disease is in check, uh, within their own population. They, and, and they're not spreading disease rampantly, you know, from, from animal to animal in our native landscape, they, I, 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 in all of my time spending time with people in nature, I've never heard of anyone being attacked by an opossum. Uh, yeah, if they're coming towards you, you should leave because then they probably do have a disease. Yeah, if a wild <laughs> animal, yeah. They'll, they'll leave, they'll run away from you. Yeah, you and might, that should be true across. You might startle them yeah. and they'll play dead or yeah. like, yeah. But I, honestly, uh, we have friends who interact with wildlife a lot more than we do. Opossums are very low risk. If yeah. if you can approach one because you're just that good, you're that just that great at being on the landscape quietly and and putting off that kind of vibe, um, they're not going to attack you. But I agree. Same with raccoons. General if rule. Towards you, they probably yeah. have, like, or something. <laughs> any wild leave. animal. Yeah. Any if wild any animal. wild animal approaches you, you're not you Snow White. Not, right? You're not, you're not just attracting <laughs> wild animals. Exactly. There's something you're not going that on. cool. Right. Um, yeah. Animals that approach humans either have been fed by humans and yeah. we need to break them of that habit because it's not safe for them or they're they or may be carrying people. a disease yeah. and we need to you should be careful of that um there's a reason we don't hang out like <laughs> like you see in the disney movies right you shouldn't <laughs> Unfortunately. yeah i wish that i could walk around with birds on my shoulders and raccoons at my feet but uh for the most part those animals and and us uh keep a safe distance for a reason we yeah. are bigger than them we could eat them. They should fear us right. naturally. Natural. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, okay. Back to, sorry, I took a, no, uh, I love it. A little detour <laughs> there, yeah. but, um, I'm curious about your thoughts on, cause I feel like there's been more conversation around nature bridges, like across yeah. highways and stuff to there help, been. to help animals and mm -hmm. animals cross yeah. uh, safely without, you know, risking getting hit by yeah. cars. Speeding yeah. By. I think that, um, 
unfortunately there hasn't been enough of them built for us to really understand how they'll work there's been some really interesting research closer to k-state on rather than going over going under so mm -hmm. using culverts so that wildlife can pass under highways i think that's probably for prairie species going to be more successful most of our animals um aren't used to this is a low to the ground ecosystem yeah. so yeah encouraging our animals to go up and over may be more difficult here in kansas i don't know though i'm not an expert on it i'd love to see more of these built so we can observe and study them um, anything that we do in an effort to protect wildlife is important um, yeah. and and there's other ways those bridges could be used if they turn out to be not so successful for all of our animals we know that deer will use um, uh, bridges over highways um, you know animals that tend to move constantly while they're feeding will tend to use them but there's a lot of animals that you know we just learned from our friend wendy not to a year ago that box turtles can't mm -hmm. cross railroad tracks there's so many barriers that we don't understand. Um, and if you can't get every expert in the room at the same time to make a decision, which I mean, yeah. <laughs> there's so many decisions we're making with really small groups of people who don't really know what they're doing. Um, Things that, that sound yeah. good, but maybe aren't like yeah. actually sound. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they look good on paper, but yeah. they're not informed. But, and it's really difficult. I mean, it's a challenge to get every expert's opinion on something before you do it. So I empathize. Um, we, we were a few months into our restoration in Topeka before we chatted with Wendy about, um, a, you know, capturing data on the wildlife that were at that site before the restoration work was complete. We're doing a bio blitz. And and she came to the site and we drove over the the railroad tracks to the restoration site. She's like, well, I can tell you right now that the box turtles can't get here. And we were like, what? <laughs> and she's like, well, they can't cross these railroad tracks. It's really dangerous. And she went in and described it to us. I'm sure they're not the only animals yeah, that I'm suffer sure. from that. And how do you put in a wildlife crossing on railroad tracks? So I'm curious for people who are listening, who are like, this is so frustrating. Like, isn't there <laughs> something that can be done? What can I do? Yes. What What is the role that we play as like private, I don't want to say private citizens, not everyone's citizens. I know. As, as people living <laughs> in our communities, what are the actions that we can take that have a real impact that, um, you know, we can do at home? Yeah, I think there's a million things that we can do, and I don't want to overwhelm. Just know that who, wherever you're coming from, whether you're living in an apartment, whether you're living in your car, whether you're living in a mansion, um, there's a way for you to, to help protect Native landscapes. If you happen to have a a patio, a, a you know, a deck um, or a yard, then getting native plants into pots in those spaces or into the ground in those spaces is a really great way to support our native wildlife, um, creating those islands of connectivity. We, research has shown them to be really effective. Even a, you know, a two foot by two foot planting of native species might be the nectar source for a native bee to go from one spot to another. They can't fly very far without their host plants. Um, if you don't have access to soil or, a, or sunshine to, to grow native plants, or you just don't have the capacity to do that, not everybody is a gardener. Um, and that's true of all folks, um, no matter what culture you're coming from, um, not everybody has, wants their hands in the dirt. You can come out um, to, like, like Morgan did, though she did so much more, help us take pictures at community events so that we can help uh, connect the community to these projects and the importance of them. Um, write stories for our websites or other folks' nonprofits' websites. These people always need help. 
Um, yeah, I was going to say, I think it's really important to recognize your own strengths. Yeah. And, you know, if you're like, I don't know the first thing about native plants, I don't know where to get native plants, which we can mm -hmm. help you with that. Definitely. <laughs> can help, but, yeah. um, but there are like, for example, um, Courtney and Ryan are in the process or you've already established your nonprofit. You're in the process of getting it like going mm -hmm. and they needed a lawyer, mm -hmm. you know, like to mm -hmm. help write the bylaws, bylaws yeah and so there's so many things that accountant accountant, accountant yeah they're <laughs> needed of an accountant if you are an accountant <laughs> please <laughs> call us. us um you know there's lots of ways that you can lend your skills and talents to these efforts without Absolutely. having to be a native plant yeah. expert or a native you know animal species expert yeah. or you know you don't even have to be a scientist whatever you're good at and man if you just like throwing parties we host dozens of events a year and we could use help with that. So if you're really great at building community or you're, you know, and I can, there's, I literally can't think of any, any skill set that just wouldn't benefit nature. Just come out there and tell yeah. me how much you like what we're doing. That yeah. just a kind word can go a long way. Yeah. And we're obviously, we're not the only nonprofit doing important work in this community. Um, and we'd love to connect you to causes that you're really, that are really important to you. Um, but I think I think you can you've picked up how the native landscapes, certainly our waterways and our native landscapes are the foundation to mm -hmm. a healthy community, no matter what community you live in. Right. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes I have to remind myself, I I love the prairie for what it is, but I think that's a bit unique. Like not everybody yeah. is going to be like super fanatical about um fighting spider wart on the side of right. dirt road. But I think we can all appreciate the value of clean water, yes. clean air, yeah. um, soil that can support food production. You know, it's these are like very basic things. And so hopefully through this conversation, we've kind of tied, you know, why this thing that we're so passionate about is, is integral to every part of life and relevant really to every person, no matter who you are, what you care about, yeah. you know, your person, you eat, you breathe, you drink, yeah. you drink water. <laughs> right. If you wake up and turn on the faucet to take a shower in the morning, that clean water comes yeah. from the river and from the, for here in Lawrence, from Clinton Reservoir, yeah. which is the damned Wakarusa River. Mm -hmm. I mean, our, our two main rivers are where we get our drinking water in Lawrence. The health of those rivers in every way you can think of is dependent on native landscapes. Yeah. Um, we, so be grateful for, be grateful for your natural areas. And if you don't like being in ticks or scratchy grass, I totally get you. Um, <laughs> I, that's our life every day, but you can help us in so many ways. And if you recognize the value of these spaces, think about what you love doing and, and you can lend a hand that way. Or if you want to stretch outside your comfort zone, reach out. So yeah. we'd love to help. And they're gonna have, if they don't already, a brand new fancy website. We do. It's going we live do. on Earth Day. Oh my God. Yeah, very excited. Um, so that that seems like a good transition. I want to talk a little bit about Native Lands and the nonprofit process. Yeah. So, um, so I guess first question is why nonprofit? Why was that transition important to you guys? Well, um, it probably always should have been a nonprofit. We, I've never really cared about making a profit. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I think that that makes sense if you look at the work we've been doing from the beginning. But I did it by myself. Yeah, I've sort of been a that person, you know, sort of had to figure out how to do college by myself, had to figure out how to start businesses by myself, uh, and now how to 
start a nonprofit, uh, not by myself, but rather learn how to build a team to do that with me and also learn how to work well with a team of people who make decisions for me. That's I've been doing it by myself for seven years. And we, we thought there's a lot of opportunities we were missing out on by not being a nonprofit officially, legally, you know, some grants we couldn't apply for. Uh, we couldn't uh, have our own core volunteer group because we weren't a nonprofit. So we did a lot of that work in collaboration with other nonprofits and helped build up their core volunteer groups, helped fundraise for them, helped write grants for them. And I loved it. Obviously it was great. And these people mean a lot to us. These organizations mean a lot to us, but we were sort of sitting in the corner, not really recognized, not visible and really struggling um, for a lot of reasons, uh, doing too much work, not really making any kind of profit, kind of living uh, in a weird way, paycheck to paycheck, though we were never <laughs> paying ourselves. Um, and so we th this is kind of a big leap of faith for us. Uh, I believe that the community will will support this move. I, I hope so. And I also feel like the nonprofit model will be a really great change for Ryan and I, Ryan and me, there's the grammar for you. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, because we honestly, we work endlessly. We really do. And we are both in our 40s now. I just turned 40. And uh, I'd love a little bit of the stability that a larger team can provide. Yeah. Um, and to have a community to lean on, because doing it on your own can be really exhausting. And it's not a model that we want folks to try to replicate. It's, it's not sustainable. So we hope building a community around this restoration work and this community education work will make it more sustainable. Yeah take off some of the pressure and weight yeah Courtney always says that our goal is to put ourselves out of business yeah. even though that will never happen yeah <laughs> it is you can try right, that's yeah, the, yeah if, if I would love to everybody needs to know how to do this stuff well right I think at, at at its core native lands the work that we do is about teaching people uh that we are stewards that the humans on this landscape have always been stewards and uh, and that we need that connectivity for all of the things we've talked about today. Um, but if for no other reason, it's because your soul needs it, yeah. you know, and mine needs it, too. And I find myself working so much that I forget some of those things. So hopefully this this new framework, the nonprofit framework will um, help me be a healthier educator, ecologist, botanist, yeah. too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And speaking of like your soul needing it, mm -hmm. I, I think. Um, I feel like I'm trying to sell um, <laughs> the prairie, but uh, no, it's, yeah. But it once you have an understanding of all that the prairie does, and not just on like a, you know, not just on the level of like, oh, well, it gives me, you know, it provides me clean water and mm -hmm. like all these services it provides, but just what it provides for you as a human being, like on a soul level, yeah. you just can't help but feel so appreciative of it and just mm -hmm. love it. And you know, you see it, a, a, you see unexpectedly prairie blazing star in the in the cow pasture across from your house and you just like <gasps> gasp and then your husband goes i know why you're gasping because he knows do you. we need to slow down yes. and look at the prairie do we need blazing to star stop and take some pictures yes yes we, we do. do thank you um so it's just like really such a joy it's such it like it, it provides such joy and i think that that um is not a coincidence no. i think i think we as humans need that and and we like have like a soul connection with these native landscapes i think so that have been here forever and ever i think so there's something in us 
something we just primal, know. something yeah, innate that mm-hmm. tells us this space needs me and I need this space. Oh, yeah. man. And we spend like hours just moving like 10 feet through the prairie when it's a nice diverse prairie you can spend a long time so many great bugs and so many different plants and animals yeah Yeah. and and the way that where my research always specialized was on those interactions yeah the plant animal interaction that will never be all defined it'll never be all on paper not that anyone would read it (laughs) but well that's what makes it so interesting too it's like there's always more to learn we're never gonna know the full story we can't yeah we can't possibly and of course we what we're studying now, what we're in observation now um, of is is a, is a largely changed ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. We, we can't see what was here a couple hundred years ago, but we can recognize its preciousness and its value. You know, we've been spending a lot of time with local fiber artists. Hi, Liz and Kim. Um, <laughs> learning how, you know, to, just the, dipping our toe into the relationship between native plants as fiber and dye this last few weeks in celebration of of the new nonprofit. When I think about like we, we've been dying with sumac and oak galls and uh, coreopsis flowers and, and a hedge, which, you know, not really native to here, um, acorns, that so many different plants that would have been precious and you would have spent time gathering and boiling and cooking and, and just to, well, to, to, to pull these colors from these plants and it, like red, just getting something dyed red, collecting all these little root systems of these th- these plants that are incredibly precious to us now because we've re- reduced them to 1% of their original cover. <laughs> um, but back then, you know, folks harvesting these plants to take home to make this precious color, it would have been so much work just to have a red sash, mm. you know, that meant something special, you know, that, that this person had achieved um, a lot of experience, you know, maybe um, someone who was excelled at hunting or someone who was an elder and, you know, was owed respect. And and so you'd use these colors, these really precious colors to relate these, these important stories and concepts. But we're, we're here just dipping a tiny little toe into that tiny portion of what life was like living here, you know? Um, And it's almost, it's exhausting, but in a way that I love, it's like I'm being broken and reformed um with this knowledge and this new relationship with plants and that's just one little way of relating to these landscapes um we spend a lot of time talking about native plants as part of sustainable food systems um if you think about living on this land 200 years ago that's where the food came from Mm -hmm. you know knowing that all these plants as friends knowing how to sustainably collect them so that you could come back to that space and get food there again um how to work with seeds how to carry seeds um how to how to eat these plants safely what part to eat i mean gosh we i could do this the rest of my life and ten thousand more lifetimes in still in this in this one ecosystem and i'd never get bored yeah it's amazing the depth of the prairie yeah and we don't that just my little bit of knowledge our little bit is nothing compared In the to the depth you know. of the indigenous knowledge. Absolutely. I mean, it's just so deep. But it, I mean, that speaks to the fact that these people were here for thousands of yeah, years from the birth of the prairie on i mean um, certainly there were tribes up, moving yeah. in and out um but that knowledge was shared mm-hmm. uh, and also you spent all of your time in that landscape yeah. i mean we weren't sitting in front of a tv or looking at our right. phones or on zoom calls or you know that if you wanted to eat you had to go out and get it if yeah. you wanted uh you know if you needed a new uh you know article of clothing to protect yourself from the sun 
you had to make it. Yeah. And that was a lot of work and it was done with a community. Yeah. Nothing yeah. was done. We do so much as individuals now. Yeah. And it makes life so much harder. Something about and... working together in a group yeah. like that towards a common goal though, that's so like fulfilling. It yeah. just feels mm -hmm. right. It feels right. good. I agree with you. And it gives me more faith <laughs> that there is going to be a community to support this work. Yeah. Sometimes I, we, there's just the two of us. It's just been Ryan and I as native lands for a couple of years now. And before that, you know, five years with, I mean, I certainly had interns and, and helpers come in and out and I'm grateful for them, but largely on my own. And, um, and it, when you work on your own, you start to believe that you're alone, that you're alone, that yeah. people can't see what you're doing. And then maybe the work's not important. And, um, you know, and maybe this is a waste of your time and you're getting older and maybe you should get smart. And what about a retirement plan? And, you know, you just get in your head and, um, it's moments like those where you, re we return to what people have been doing for so many thousands of years. And we remember that, um, the community is, is where your strength comes from. Well, and I, I was going to ask you what kind of advice or what piece of advice you would give to somebody who is really worried about climate change and our future and mm -hmm. you know what what to do how to you know where to draw hope from and i yeah. I, I don't want to answer for you but <laughs> but i feel like community is a big piece of that is, and yeah. and i'll speak to my own experience like several years ago um four years ago i had gotten to a point with my anxiety and depression mm -hmm. that was largely fueled by eco-anxiety, just yeah. concern for the future of the place that we live and rely on yeah. for life and um, felt very alone in that. And it's because I was isolating myself. I, 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 you know, I felt like nobody else cared. Nobody else saw this um, because at the time, you know, there wasn't really anyone in my life who, um, who seemed to worry about that very much yeah. and who, you know, who paid attention like I do. Um, and noticed, oh, like today, you know, it's April 11th and it's going to be 81 degrees and, you know, feeling very anxious about that. And like, well, if it's 81 degrees in April, what's August going to look like? And what's right. that going to mean for the plants? And what's that going to mean for us? And what's that going to mean for people who are living without air conditioning? And, right. you know, it's just like, it just kind of snowballed, snowballed, snowballed. And so ultimately it led me to therapy, yeah, <laughs> which I, yeah. I needed, but it also led me to community, which was, I think, as much of a balm yes. for me as therapy was, um, realizing like, I am not in this alone. I'm not the only one who worries about these things. I'm not the only one who's doing something about yeah. these things. There are people who are doing a lot more about these things than I am. And that gave me like great comfort. Yeah. And, um, so anyway, I just like answered my own no, question, I but I'm, I'm curious what you guys think, like what your, um, what you would tell somebody who has a, who is feeling a lot of anxiety and worry about our future and you know yeah i don't know how do you how do you how do you feel what how do you, do? you come up from that yeah. you know what do you do there's certainly days if you haven't picked up on that there's certainly days when it's heavy um what what would you say right what, what i know right yeah don't, don't ask him. <laughs> I struggled with many, I still struggle with many of, this, of the things that you tried to share there. And uh, community is extremely important, but also, rec you know, just get yourself out giving in any way that you can. I, when folks ask me um, the secret to getting to where I am today, it's, I, I really feel like volunteer work is, 
is, is imperative. Mm -hmm. Whatever you need, whatever you can give yourself to. And I, and like we were saying, there's so many ways to give. Volunteer work doesn't have to mean drive to the local shelter and feed people, though that's a really great way to give. Um, it doesn't mean, always mean come out and, um, and uh, you know, give of your sweat equity to a restoration project, though we'd love to have you. Uh, whatever giving looks like to you, uh, whatever giving is comfortable to you, then start there. Also, if you need some positivity, all the people that come do these volunteer days are happy. Super to be awesome. There yeah. It's such a, yeah. Yeah. Positive. It's great exercise. Yeah. You're out in the weather. You get to, we have really great interactions with plants and animals all the time. But I think community, I think community is really, even for those of us, uh, I'm really an introverted person, though I fake extroversion I when say, I have to. Fake it well. <laughs> I do. I you learn how to fake it. Um, we I I would have balked at the idea of more people being what I needed I mean, at the me beginning. Too, me yeah. Too. But finding your 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 people, finding your people who also care and are also struggling uh, with wrapping their heads around all these problems in the world and taking tangible action, even if it's little things can can really help your heart even if it's accounting even if it's accounting <laughs> or you know anything if you want to come weed my garden as ironic as that is if you want to come over to my house and weed my garden <laughs> um and it's not my garden it's a seed production garden of course because everything we do <laughs> is is in service of the prairie and the native landscapes but you know if you just want to come over and 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 be positive around us yeah um or heck, don't be positive. <laughs> yeah, we're crying. <laughs> Come over and cry and tell me that that what that you want to help save the world. Then we've got you. So a quote that I like that's on my journal that I use every day is, "There are always flowers for those who want to see them." Yeah, and I think it's Henry Matisse mm -hmm. is who said that. And I that's another thing that I lean on. I feel like that quote is talking about the prairie. Mm -hmm. Um, because the prairie is very adaptive and resilient mm -hmm. and adaptable and resilient. And, um, I think, you know, even though we're living with 1% of what there was originally, there are still flowers for those who want That's to right. see them. Absolutely. And I think it's important to not lose sight of that too. I love that. I think if you want to see change in the world, you go out and you make it. And I know that's difficult. I've certainly been in positions where I, you know, we've struggled with depression and anxiety, and I think a lot of us do. And there are definitely going to be days when you open your eyes and you say, there's no way I'm getting out of bed to plant wildflowers today. That's okay. Mm -hmm. And that's okay, too. But if you can find the strength, you know, to come out and just step into the sun with us for a little bit. You might feel um, better. <laughs> you might feel a little better. And if you plant that wildflower, you can go back and see your wildflower every year. Yep. Um, Speaking of wildflowers... What is each of your favorite prairie plants? And you know why? that's an evil question. <laughs> it is evil, but I'm doing it anyway. All of them. Um, I I always say my favorite or is... Or maybe your favorite right now. My favorite right now. Are. Yeah, they're all good. Oh, gosh. My favorite prairie flower today is probably hoary pecoons, which I know it sounds... It's fun to Great say, name. hoary pecoon. Mm -hmm. um, lithospermums, the stone seeds. Um, I love them. They are truly spring uh, harbingers. They tell us that the spring on the prairie has, has started. Um, they're a mustard yellow flower that's intense, and I look forward to looking for them this time of year every year, and especially on burned prairies because they're mm -hmm. tiny little guys, gals, um, who just want to share their brilliance. 
and you can't see them under a bunch of dead prairie grass if you don't burn. So mm -hmm. I, this is my time of year. I go out and look for the cocoons. What about you? I think my favorite prairie plant that is occurring right now is probably, I'll say this for Wendy pussy toes. <laughs> <laughs> our friend Wendy loves it. I don't know. They're just beautiful. And we have a, a carpet of them on our prairie. And what do they look like for people who've never seen them? Courtney will explain. Yeah, they're, they're, he, he knows what they look like. Yeah. He just wants my fanciful language. So they very, very short, couple inches tall. They're silver foliage, which is absolutely gorgeous. And they are super important host plant. Um, so what one of the things we like to do is walk around and look for caterpillars on our pussy toes. Okay. Um, so the American painted lady butterfly is 100% dependent on a very small group of plants. Ooh. And they tend to be plants that are fuzzy and silver foliage plants. So things like sweet everlasting or pussy toes um, are something that we may overlook walking around um, in yeah, a they're prairie. Short. They're the short. The flowers on them are cool too. It's like little... Pom -pom kitten fingers <laughs> that's yeah, why they're called yeah, pussy toes yeah, because the the flowers look like fuzzy kitten toes but um, pussy toes is way more fun to pussy say toes than, is more yeah, fun than, than kitten toes than kitten toes um courtney if you were is someone is like i want to start a little uh native prairie garden in my front yard my mm -hmm. backyard whatever what are five plants that you would recommend to like a new a person who's new to all of this oh my gosh so fail safes is the way to think you know like yeah anybody you know, idiot's guide to prairie gardening yeah. <laughs> can grow. Um, rose verbena, absolutely. Well, first, make sure you have enough sunshine. Yeah. If it's a prairie garden, you need full sun. But rose verbena, I think landsleaf coreopsis because yarrow. yarrow um, these are all three of those will bloom for a long time. They smell amazing. Um, and they're really, you'll get a lot of wildlife interaction with those plants. Native grasses mm -hmm. for crying out loud. Yeah. My favorite native grass for small garden spaces is June grass. Um, but it's a cool season grass. So if you're looking for a, a warm season grass, that just means you can kind of pick up, read between the line on what cool season and warm season <laughs> means. But um, so spring green grasses, I love June grass. If you love prairie grasses that are iconic, um, side oats, grandma or little blue stem are really great for gardens. Little blue stem is my favorite. <laughs> it's so pretty and it's always pretty. Um, what about, the oh, the eyebrow. Yeah, blue grandma. Blue. We've been really falling in love with blue grandma grass. Mm. It's it's our Northeastern Kansas's buffalo grass, essentially. They're very closely related. Um, and uh, buffalo grass doesn't like it here. It's too wet here. So blue grandma is as close as we can get. And it's a nice short grass with eyebrows as their, in, uh, their flowers and their seed heads look like eyebrows. Adorable. <laughs> so cute. Well, thank you guys so much for talking with me about of the course. prairie. I I hope, you know, at least a few hearts have been changed about opossums and coyotes and hopefully, so you know, there was, you know, some some moments for people where they got chills or got excited. I so. about, we did. <laughs> yeah, about the prairie. Um, it's such a wonderful landscape and I've told you this before, but I just really appreciate the work that you guys do. You guys are you too, a big balm for me. Um, you know, just knowing that you're out there doing this work every day is Thank just you. really yeah. fabulous. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you. It means a lot to us. Thanks for listening to the Makers, Dreamers, Doers podcast with me, Morgan Barrett. 
please remember to follow, review, and share this podcast with anyone who you think would enjoy it. Your support helps more people find the podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at morganbarrett underscore underscore and check out my website for more information at morganbarrett.co.